You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It's coming up to Christmas. I'm thinking about Brandon Kearney, how he loved to sit and stare at the Christmas tree lights. And Brandon's mom, still holding that small flicker of hope that her boy will come home for Christmas one day. I'm remembering Desmond Sr.'s last Christmas gift to his son, an MP3 player, the final gift he would ever give his boy. The holidays, all holidays, are hard for the families of the missing. There is an incredible chocolate and candy shop on the island near where I live. Coombs Country Candy has been making handmade candy canes, mouth-watering chocolate, and peanut brittle for over 50 years. I pop in for stocking stuffers, and on my way out, I spot a new missing poster in the window. Professor Kim Rosmo's uneasy acknowledgement crosses my mind that it may take more missing men in order for a pattern to clearly emerge. Kelly McLeod always tried to make it home for the holidays, but now Kelly McLeod is missing, gone. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crime Season 2, Gone Boys, Episode 5, Misfits. Kelly McLeod's missing poster is memorable. The picture of Kelly is possibly the worst I've ever seen. A mugshot. He is unshaven, wild-haired, scarred, dead eyes, mouth hanging open. Middle-aged, but looks much older. He is the very picture of addiction and homelessness. It's the kind of photo you find yourself looking at and making all kinds of judgments. Scratch the surface, and there is more to Kelly's story. Kelly's is a snapshot of trauma and addiction. And this picture of a man which, let's face it, will not evoke much empathy, brings to mind something criminologist Michael Arnfield said. Vulnerable people like Kelly are good victims because they provide a forensic countermeasure advantage. Whether it's sex trade workers or addicts, offenders often know that these cases will be sort of consigned to the dustbin. Kelly's sister, Laurel McLeod, is not willing to let Kelly's case be forgotten. Um, So my name is Laurel McLeod. And Kelly is my brother, my older brother. When Laurel shares information about her brother online, she includes a different image as well. This is the Kelly she tries to remember. Handsome, laughing. I asked Laurel to talk to me about growing up with her big brother, Kelly. We had a pretty normal life. We went to school, came home, mom was home, dinner was on the table. You know, you eat dinner, you clean up the dishes, just a normal go outside to play. He was a pretty easygoing kid. Like he didn't really, he didn't start fights or anything like that. He just, he was an easygoing kid. Typical teen, um, dirt biking. He had a YZ80. 
So we spent a, he spent a lot of time on that. He used a little music, you know, ACDC, the typical 70s, 80s. You know, as he got into his teen years, then he started partying and drinking. And, but he always worked. Anytime he did get in trouble, we were very, we had to take responsibility for our actions. She talks about the funny and charming man he becomes. He's got a quick wit. He's smart. He's, he is, he's funny. He's, um, he's a bit of a shit, (laughs) but like in a good way, he's just cheeky. I don't know. He, he can banter. Um, I don't know. He just, um, he was good to have around. He always took care of me being so much older. Um, you think that I would be a pain in the ass, but, um, he was always very good to me. But then, like so many of the men I've learned about, Kelly's life takes a tragic turn. He dove into water and there was not enough water. <laughs> and so he ended up breaking his neck. Um, he was in Shaughnessy Hospital for quite a long time. Um, probably must have been about 15 or 16, I think. So he would have been, what, 24? And yeah, I remember going to see him at the hospital and he had like one of those metal halos sort of skirt to him. Like he could walk. I don't know how he even... uh, I don't even know how he managed to get through that. (laughs) Like, it was a lot. I didn't think about the severity then because I was a kid. But looking back on it, it's just like, wow, that's such a huge, it was a huge event. And the pain and the trauma puts Kelly on a path to addiction. No longer able to work as a logger, Kelly's life unravels. He's good looking, charming, and he has no shortage of girlfriends. But he never marries. Kelly has two children, but he doesn't have much of a role in their lives. And he's in and out of trouble with the law. Mischief, theft, assault, and eventually a life of homelessness. He was living under the bridge in a tent. Um, he had a table, his cart, his, his bike, all of the stuff that he used to collect recyclables. And that's kind of how he made his money. Recycling metals and pop cans and I'm sure stealing here and there. But yeah, no, he was he was fully on his own. Still, Kelly establishes a kind of life for himself, eking out an existence on the edges. He, from my understanding, Kelly was pretty routine. Always, always seen around town, riding his bike, pulling his cart. Always collecting bottles. Um, people would save them for him. Businesses. He'd go to the bottle depot almost every day. For somebody that was homeless, he was fairly routine. You know, we always knew that he was around. Um, We've got very good friends over there that we knew if anything happened, you know, we could keep in touch with them to know that he was doing okay. Kelly and his sister were raised to take responsibility for their actions, an ethos Lorel repeatedly raises in my conversation with her. But there is little doubt in her mind about the role drugs played in Kelly's life. 
from my understanding, I think it was into meth. Um, probably fentanyl, I would assume. I don't know. I think it was the meth more so in the end that really changed him. And so when the family learns Kelly is missing, they immediately fear the worst. Um, when I actually was told and I knew instantly he would never, ever up and leave everything that he actually needs for basic survival. He would not leave that and just walk away. The police conduct a search in the areas Kelly was known to visit or camp, but no new information is found. Laurel believes her brother was murdered. I believe they know what they are doing. I think that they absolutely know everything. It's just a matter I worry. Can they do anything about it? Was Kelly killed over a drug debt? Did he steal from the wrong people? Was he targeted by vigilantes? I have been told. And of course it's hearsay because I've heard nothing from the police to confirm. I have been told they put him in the river. I don't know if that's true. While I'm working on this series, a young man in Campbell River is lit on fire while sleeping under a bridge. Another older homeless man is fatally assaulted in the same community just one month later. I don't know. It's just, it has to stop. Like, it's not okay. And I worry that we won't find him. Because the track record there isn't very good. There's always that bit of hope. I mean, I will never, ever, ever lose that. But it's hard to keep faith. For sure. Campbell River is about an hour and a half up the coast from Port Alberni, the place Brandon Kearney once called home. You'll remember we spoke to his mom and dad in episode one about how he was forever changed following a brain injury. Port Alberni is another island community where men on the margins are vanishing. Uh, my name is Stacy Johnston. I worked in a drop-in center and that was where where marginalized people could come in and stop in for a coffee was a safe place. I meet Stacy outside her home in Port Alberni. She's an attractive middle-aged woman with long blonde hair and pretty blue-green eyes. One day this young man came in and he was all scruffy. He looked like he'd been out in the bush for probably a month, and uh, that's how I met Brandon. And then he started coming in probably every day after that, and we would sit and chat. He was like to talk about religion, and so very interesting. Stacy came to know Brandon Kearney well over the years and years of conversation at the drop-in center. And in time, she begins to understand why Brandon had trouble conforming and belonging here. You just had a quick little conversation with him. 
you wouldn't you would have no idea that he had a brain injury. If you looked at him, he was just a really good, good looking young man, like a strong and people would see him like I, I knew uh, men in town that would see him standing in the, like the bread line at that soup kitchen and just make really uh, rude comments, condescending. Oh, what's he doing there? You know, he's strong. He could get a job and just just really belligerent comments about him. But then, you know, one day... Brandon would get his head shaved, really short haircuts, and then you could see this huge, massive scar from his injury. And then if you did sit and have a conversation with him for any, like, kind of length of time, like I had, then you would see the the delays in him and his childlikeness that he would have. A lot of the times you'd be more like a 10-year-old. So you'd be conversations where you'd be talking about, oh, his video games and wanting to play with the swords and be like a Batman-type character or things like that. So you have this young man who looks so strong and all this, but he would be more like this young kid in his mental capabilities. On the outside, a strong, capable, handsome young guy. On the inside, childlike, vulnerable to bullying, teasing, and harassment. So there'd be other people in the community that like to just tease him. Other men, young men. I think they were a bit jealous of him because Brandon was such a good-looking young man. So they would go by the window and they could see him and then they would like egg him on and everything because they knew that they could get him going. They'd just pick and pick and pick at him and they would just do it and they'd keep doing it day after day and at him. And then he just couldn't take it anymore and he'd get up and go or if he had a girlfriend, they would do things just to bug him and taunt and taunt and taunt him. He just didn't have the ability to know that they were just trying to get him going. Stacy believes Brandon was a target because he was good-looking and popular with women. And at the time Brandon goes missing, other disturbing things are happening at the center. So uh, I guess around that time, there had been a lot of missing people in our community and just a little further out. Uh, young men had been going missing. And uh, quite a few from my drop-in center or people that we knew. So there was a lot of young men missing in their 20s, which seemed very strange. So up and down Vancouver Island, one had been found murdered. There was a young man that came into the drop-in that had been, say, kidnapped and held for three days and tortured. So there's people going, young men going missing, being tortured. They were coming into the drop-in center. So there was a whole pile of odd stuff going on. Then uh, one of our other clients went missing. I just want you to, I guess, expand a bit on this point in time where 
you're aware that Brandon, you know, from time to time goes off into the bush, what have you, disappears for a while. But you're also aware that, you know, stuff is going on in the community and that maybe this time he hasn't just walked away. Um, there was concerns that maybe he wasn't just out in the bush because he bothered the wrong people in the community. He was seen getting into um, disagreements with some people in the community that weren't exactly the finest of people that could be known to not do that nice of things to people that they didn't like and uh there were some problems around that time with them and so it was just convenient timing that he went into the bush and didn't show up there was a few people that went missing around that time did part of you wonder as well if you know given that he was being kind of bullied and harassed to a certain extent if maybe he just like thought to heck with this place I'm getting out of here and that he did just like pick up and totally go to somewhere new did that did that occur to you as a possibility he always sort of came back and he loved his mom and so I can't really see him leaving her I just I can't see that <laughs> he always reminded me of like this um like a, a puppy like this this big puppy for his body you know that's just always just really wanted to be there and just lovey helpful and just uh, super excited to see you and just just really just brought in a really nice sweet kind energy that's the person I I knew and that's what he brought into my world Gone Boys we'll be right back after a quick break From where Stacy sits, she sees young men disappearing, being abducted, and murdered. And so when Brandon Kearney vanishes, despite the fact she knows he loves the wilderness, she's concerned that he has met with foul play. Brandon's uncle also worked with marginalized people in Port Alberni. Uh, Mark Kearney, um, Brandon's uncle. I I worked in um, with the uh, with the provincial homeless program for years and years, and I did work with Brandon as well as being his uncle. I meet up with him at a beach where I sometimes take my dog for a swim. It's tough to wrap my head around the hard scrabble world of the drop-in center and the fact that this pretty park is just a 10-minute drive away. 
Mark and I sit in my vehicle and look out at the long, narrow Alberni Inlet stretching in from Barkley Sound. He is open and thoughtful as he reflects on his nephew's life. Brandon was a... Brandon and anybody who, who knows him will tell you this. Brandon had a sense of right and wrong. Brandon would, when he would get into trouble, he would get into trouble protecting somebody. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, he, Brandon was a, a bigger guy. He was, he was strong as a horse. He loved to work. I mean, and, and the, the heavier work, the better. You know, if he could do something packing shingles up onto a roof, that's what he wanted to do because he, he enjoyed the hard work. Um, but in, in social situations, Brandon attended at, you know, the soup kitchen because he enjoyed volunteering there. He enjoyed being there. Uh, I believe he enjoyed the people, but he would get into trouble there because he would see what he perceived as being injustices, people taking advantage, and he would speak up, and sometimes it would go bad. This is something I hear time and time again. Alienated men like Brandon Kearney and Kelly McLeod choose to isolate because they get into trouble when they try to be part of the community, a kind of self-exclusion. So he became somewhat isolated, I guess. Uh, he spent a lot of time in the woods. He liked to be out hiking and that's what he would do. That's what he would spend all his time doing. Um, because when he came to town, he got in trouble, right? You know, uh, he was just, just trying to stay out of trouble, you know, as because that the, the life, when you spend all your days on the streets, trouble is just there, you know? It's almost like they don't fit anywhere. He, he got into a fight with somebody outside of the battle life because people were taking coffee cups out and he told them to bring them back because they weren't supposed to do that. That was against the rules. You just need to be a an eighth of a turn, you know, off to not fit in society. And Brandon couldn't fit. And a lot of these people can't fit. You know, they just can't fit. Brandon Kearney, a social, gregarious boy before his brain injury, increasingly incapable of coping in society. He's getting into trouble. And then one day, gone. His uncle gets a call about a missed appointment and the search begins. I'm like, okay, well, I better start doing some backtracking here. And then I realized Brandon hadn't been seen by anybody. He was just gone. And so we um, went through his apartment. His, his cell phone was there. His hiking gear was there. He didn't take anything with him. Everybody in his situation is vulnerable. You're out there. You're out there. You don't have a car, so you're walking everywhere. 
you're you're vulnerable. You know, it's 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 about survival. I'm deep into my research about the missing men when a story breaks that shifts my perspective on the circumstances here. A dirt biker got a terrifying surprise in the gravel pit just beyond these trees on Melrose Forest Service Road in Whiskey Creek on Sunday, when at around 2 p.m. he came upon a dead body in the clearing. When first responders arrived, they found two more people dead in a burned-out RV and a fourth person suffering gunshot wounds, but still alive in a second RV. I have talked to investigators who said it, you know, it was uh, a grisly scene. The Czech TV coverage shows a scene straight out of Breaking Bad. Burned out vehicles, run down RVs. Except this isn't New Mexico. This is the Pacific Northwest. Three dead bodies, four dead dogs. One man still alive and bodies burned beyond recognition. These people were living in the woods. In the days following the discovery, outreach workers speak out about how a growing number of homeless people are moving deeper into the forest to escape what is described to me by multiple sources as vigilante behavior. One worker says she knows of 16 such encampments near Parksville, the community closest to the Whiskey Creek murder site. Parksville and its close neighbor, Qualicum Beach, are two of the island's most beloved tourist spots. Gorgeous coastline, mild climate, packed with retirement communities and golf courses. Men on the margins are unwelcome by many here. For a time after the only shelter closes, homeless here slept in a church cemetery. Could some of Vancouver Island's missing men be living in the forests? I decide to go out and see for myself what's happening. But first, I need a guide. I'm meeting Coco, an outreach nurse, whose real name is Doreen Littlejohn, at a place called Forward House. A small bungalow in the heart of the city. They support people with mental health or addiction issues and offer a safe place to watch TV, do some art, or do your laundry. I'm welcomed by a young woman covered in tattoos, hovering over homemade soup and pulling freshly baked buns from the oven. Coco arrives in a flurry of activity. She's about five feet tall with a crisp ash blonde haircut and sparkling dark eyes. She has agreed to let me accompany her and her colleague Emma on their regular Thursday route. Emma is a government employee, a community integration specialist. Anything she says will have to be vetted. So we agree that Coco will do the talking. This is an old van. (laughs) Yep. And then then Emma, if there's something that I'm missing, we're really a tag team. (laughs) A good tag team. Um, If there's something that I've missed, and if you want to jump in and say something. We jump into the forward house van, 
As we head to a church to pick up some brown bag lunches, we talk. I'm a registered nurse and I've worked in community with what I would classify as uh, very vulnerable populations. Most of my career, um, I would say that I'm kind of an expert in working with street-involved people that have multiple barriers. And as she drives, Coco describes the us and them climate she is working in. A majority of the people that I meet are from the island. Um, There's, of course, there's many people that come here and, um, you know, want to come to the island for whatever reason. But there are a lot of people that also have lived here. Their families have lived here. So when I first moved to Oceanside, I had great difficulty when I was looking at the community in terms of of us and them. Um, And I was meeting the people that were in the community that were um, very vulnerable and I think very marginalized. And I was talking to them and understanding that they lived in this community and they were part of this community, but they were like the, the, the shadows in the community. It, it was something that wasn't talked about or, or looked at as they're not our problem, they're not from here, we don't have to deal with it. Shadows. Coco's description of the men she works with is perfect. And it's very much in line with how I've come to view the missing men I've been learning about. There's lots of wonderful, caring people in this community. But the political climate in this community is we will not have shelters. We will not support people who are homeless. Um, It's us and them. And that rhetoric, of course, is, is, is carried on on various Facebook and social media sites that people have set up with uh, what I literally I would call hate-filled comments. There's no acceptance. And that Facebook page Coco mentions, it sprung up at a time when there was a fight over proposed supported housing in the community. I can't begin to tell you how horrible it was. Because why? Because we were trying to have a supported housing in this community, and this community didn't want it. It would lead to drug use. It would lead to problems with with all sorts of problems with the community. They're going to be drug users. They're going to affect your property values. We shouldn't allow them. They, they shouldn't be near the services. They're, if we put our retirement housing in, it's going to destroy, it's going to destroy the, the peace of the retirement. It was just so much negative, horrible rhetoric. And it was all based in, it was fear-based. I sign up to the group to see for myself what Coco is talking about. Skids, marginals, hobos, junkies, thieves, creepy people. That's how the thousands of people who are part of this group characterize the men living in the woods around their community. There is a legitimate concern about property crime expressed here and a lot of talk of taking matters into their own hands. 
And yet, there are many people who are helping. We arrive at a church where there is a regular weekly lunch service, homemade soup, lunches to take away. And today they are handing out truly impressive waterproof backpacks filled with supplies. And they all have tarps at the time. Okay, thank you. Yes, I saw that. That's awesome. There's, there's Oh, yeah, that's Before we head out to the bush, we stop briefly at a travel lodge, which has temporarily opened rooms to the homeless. So, so Laura's a reporter, and she's working on a story about... Yeah, she's, she's working on a story about young men that have gone missing. A young man tells me he wants to speak with me about the missing men. He is jittery, shakily fumbling with a crack pipe kit. He tries repeatedly to have a conversation with me. But in the end, he gives up, telling me he simply can't communicate unless he's high. As I watch this young, addicted man, I think about the fentanyl epidemic here on the West Coast. This part of Canada has an escalating overdose crisis. Over a thousand people died here last year. And the vast majority of those deaths were young to middle-aged men. Coco tells me on this day last year, they checked in on one of their regular campers only to find him dead in his bed. He died of an overdose. She talks about a teenager she helped on the side of a highway recently, high on fentanyl at the time. We pull up beside a bridge over the beautiful Englishman River. I've spent time at a gorgeous park just on the other side. The scene under the bridge is a far cry from the pristine camping spot I enjoyed last summer. So we're just walking in under a bridge. There's some shopping carts with some belongings and some recycling bins. That was real. You're gonna meet us up here. You're gonna meet another young man. The good thing about the Orange Bridge, it's noisy, but if they're camping here, they don't have the rain pouring on them. Yeah. Hey, Will, good for you. Um, yeah. Yeah, We'll ask if we have any needles before we go. Coco, of course, has a supply. Driving away from Will, I spot a well-dressed, healthy-looking hiker out enjoying a midday stroll along the river's edge. He looks about the same age as Will but they are experiencing the coast in such different ways. We search for a young woman who was reported living out in the woods alone. She was spotted by a local out riding her horse on the trails. Again, the contrast is jarring. Next, we head just outside of town, 
past rows of new cookie-cutter houses in a brand-new subdivision. Coco pulls over, and we begin walking into the forest. They're so far in that we haven't been bringing the lunches in. We do have, have them just follow us up. Right. There is a dead deer on the edge of the trail, and some garbage litters the area. This is not the Parksville of golf clubs and retirement villas. Like they move further and further in, so so people aren't uh, can't find them. So they feel they feel a little safer in here because they're not getting um, turfed by city officials, or they're not getting um, flack from the community. This is a decoy tent here that they set up. So explain that to me. The decoy tent was set up so if people were going to get angry about people camping, they could take it out on the decoy tent where there's no people. And thinking that the camp is vacated. Yeah. And think the camp is gone, or if they were going to throw things, they could throw them at that. The fact that these men have gone to the trouble of setting up what appears to be a pretty elaborate decoy encampment on the outskirts of the woods says a lot. As we walk further into the forest, I ask Coco to talk to me about what they hope to accomplish with these forays into the woods. And so you're coming here today, why? To see who's here, to see if they want any food or if they have any issues or they need help with anything, they need harm reduction supplies, they need any warm clothing. Hey, Simone! I got the <laughs> Simone, it's Emma Coco! I have a waterproof backpack for you. So we just stopped in front of a small tent with a bunch of supplies sitting outside. And do you know who lives in there? Yes. So tell me about that. It's a single lady who's living on her own. So she's uh, she's been here for the last couple of weeks. And I really don't know too much about her living circumstance, but I know she's here. And she came out and got lunch and everything last week, so. So what are, what am I looking at? Who's that, there? Is there a tent in there? Yeah. Hey, Dean! Or Darcy! Darcy! It's Claire and Emma and Coco! We have food! <laughs> you have to have a good loud voice. Crying out names, identifying who we are and what our intentions are, serves a purpose beyond just a wake-up call. They also have to know who's approaching them. So that's why we do a lot of the yelling Mm -hmm. and calling out. So they don't think it's somebody coming after them. The campers have chosen to scatter their tents apart from each other making them harder to find, but also more vulnerable in some ways. 
Can you imagine being in here on a day when the wind's blowing, the rain's pouring, and it's so cold, and you're all alone? <laughs> it's just, I think of that all the time, like <laughs> when I go outside and walking my dogs in the rain, and I think, oh, I can go home to a warm house. But when you think about this isolation and sitting in that little tent and, and just being so... Just isolated, lonely, afraid. <laughs> you talked about um, a young man you met a while ago. Yeah. Uh, who was using fentanyl. Yeah. And, like, these people, if they're out here and they're using, they're all alone. Yeah, exactly. It's so dangerous. It's so dangerous, and that's why we're always... Uh, he's trying to say, try and use together. Use the Narcan kit. It's scary. And just then, we spot a tent hidden deep in the woods. Hi, guys. Well, it's the outreach crew. Come on out to the street, you guys. Oh, hey. Hey, Taylor. Hey, Taylor. <laughs> We're looking for you. How many, Taylor? Can they come and get some of the stuff? Yeah. Yeah, bring, we just, we bring, at least, bring at least one more. There's some cool backpacks for them, too. Okay. Yeah. They're they're waterproof. Okay. Are you good? Good, are you? Good. I'm fantastic. Oh, well, wash your foot there, okay? Chase, we haven't met you before. Nope. I just got here. Where, where are you from? Nanaimo. Okay. Oh. I just, it was raining and the bus came. How'd My, you meet up with everybody? You just know Taylor? Yeah. Oh, I found Taylor and I was like, oh, I knew I was supposed to find somebody. Yeah, yeah I knew I was supposed to find someone. Oh, we brought some food and stuff. Cool. Yeah. I just don't want to lose them coming Excellent. out to the... So who else is all here? There's you, there's Taylor. Me, Taylor, and Darcy are there. Oh, good. Cool. He said he was going to make an appearance. He's just fashionably... Hey, hey guys. Late. Hi. Not late, but tardy. Here, a cool bag for you, Darcy. Nice to see you guys. Taylor and Chase look young to me. They're in their late teens, maybe early 20s. Both are very thin. Darcy is likely middle-aged. He has a bit of a John Malkovich look about him. Yeah, nice to meet all of you. Yeah, we yeah. almost didn't see this spot. It's, it's well that's hidden. Point. I know. I guess. <laughs> it's a whole lot more peaceful here than yeah. it is in the Nile, so Kevin I think Allen I'm going to just, like, yeah, I can't say move here because I'm homeless yeah. anyways, but yeah. I'll be homeless here. Can we go okay. back to that one? You guys want some help? You lead. Which way should we go? Follow me. Okay. Oh, I didn't know the easy way to this, but I was going to get that one. I really am new on They are all friendly and alert, and they seem happy to meet the outreach team. I tell them about the work I'm doing, trying to learn about why men are going missing on the island. They share emails, phone numbers, and Facebook connections with me. In the weeks that follow, I try repeatedly to reach them again, to see if they have thought of anything I should know. I hear nothing. They are shadows. Is it possible 
some of Vancouver Island's missing men decided to make the forest their home for a time. Could any of them still be out there? I'm struck by the significance of marginalized people moving deeper and deeper into the woods to avoid conflicts. Where they used to gather together for support and companionship, they are now spreading out, isolating themselves once again so as not to attract attention from people that mean them harm. Men finding it hard to fit in, falling through the cracks, and perhaps creating what criminologist Michael Arnfield described as an available stock pond of victims for a serial murderer. Some islanders see Vancouver Island as their own idyllic resort, a place where men on the margins don't belong. Does that friction have a role in this story? Could the online vitriol be contributing to a climate where men are harassed and targeted? If you have information about Kelly McLeod or about any of Vancouver Island's missing men, please get in touch at laura at laurapalmer.ca. Ahead in Episode 6, an interview with the FBI. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crime Season 2, Gone Boys. Please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. This podcast.